I do want to take a moment and just say thank you to those who have decorated. I don't know if you noticed when you came in this morning, but our sanctuary looks a little different. And that is because individuals came and they worked really hard. I say individuals. I think Daly did a lot of the decorating, although she did have my daughter helping some. But we are grateful uh, for all of the work that goes into that. Uh, this is a great season of the year as we celebrate Advent. It's always a great season to remember. It's also a time to simply enjoy family. But Christmas is so much more than just having good feelings. It is about hope. It is about the fulfillment of promises that were made generations before. But for us to fully understand the light which Jesus brought into the world, we must also understand the darkness in which his light appeared. While we think of the Christmas season and we think of light and we think of truth, the reality is the birth story of Jesus is filled with great darkness as well. So often we think of the beautiful scene of a manger with Mary and Joseph and the angel appearing over top and the shepherds coming in. And that is a beautiful image, primarily because we know what it leads to. But the truth is, when Jesus came into the world, there was much darkness. Anticipating the birth of the Christ child centuries earlier, as you heard earlier in this service, Isaiah wrote that the light that was coming into the world, that it would stand out because there were a people that were shrouded in darkness. Gloom, anguish, and contempt were just some of the adjectives there in Isaiah chapter 9 that describe the type of darkness to which Jesus came. Thus, in order for us to fully understand the revelation of the light, Jesus coming, we need to also recognize the darkness into which he was born. In fact, listen to a few of the things that made the world so dark at that moment in time. Things not out of God's control, by the way, but rather sovereignly ordained so that Christ's light would shine even brighter. You know, sometimes darkness can actually show off the light a little bit better. And that's where they were. Let me give you some examples. First of all, when Christ was born, the word of God had not been heard for 400 years. Malachi was the last book in the Old Testament. It was written in the 5th century B.C. and it concludes with the statement that God would send Elijah, the prophet, as a forerunner of the Messiah. But since that last pregnant statement there in Malachi, which would eventually be fulfilled, by the way, in John the Baptist, God had been silent, and everyone knew it. It wasn't as if there was some question as to whether or not the prophets were still speaking. The people knew it. In fact, listen to two of the Jewish writers of that, that day. In the Babylonian Talmud, it is said, After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel, but they still availed themselves of the voice from heaven. In other words, even the Jewish writers of their day, not necessarily being inspired by God, but even the Jewish writers of their day recognize that the Spirit of God seems to have been absent. Certainly there have been no prophets. In the book of 1 Maccabees, it says, 
So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. It is as if they knew that there was something that was severely missing. Without the word of God present among them, the people walked in spiritual darkness. Second, the people of God were also under the oppressive rule of Rome. This is evident in the birth story of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 records the census being taken up by Caesar Augustus. It was a blatant reminder that the people of Israel were owned by another. They had to do what someone else told them to do. Likewise, Herod, a descendant of Edom, ruled in Jerusalem. Long gone were the days of the Davidic king. Much like today, soldiers walked the streets of Jerusalem. Only they weren't 19-year-old Israelis with M16s. They were Roman guards called to police the city of David. In some ways, Israel had escaped their exile. No longer did they live in Babylon, but in many ways they were exiles in their own country. Even their own temple was built by a foreigner. Herod the Great was a descendant of a rival nation. Political darkness reigned for the people of God. Third, the nation of Israel was even fractured from within. Four groups in Israel sought and fought to lead the people. On the one hand, we had the Pharisees. They resided in Jerusalem. They attempted to shape the religious life in Israel through their traditions. Jesus had many run-ins with the Pharisees, with these legalistic Jews who led astray the people of God. Sadducees, they were the second group. They opposed the strict legalism of the Pharisees and only embraced Moses' law. In other words, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They rejected the resurrection, believing that it was not even possible. They rejected belief in angels, but they still had an influential place in the temple and law courts. Third, we had a group called the Essenes, who lived in a commune near Qumran. They were the scribes who would pen and preserve what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived an especially pure life. They devoted themselves to God and prayed for God's overthrow of Rome. And finally, you had the Zealots. They were a band of brothers who did not pray for change so much as they sought violent means of overthrowing Roman rule. The result of these four competing sects in Judaism led to constant friction and only increased by the oppressive rule of Rome. Riots were common. Tension was unceasing. Darkness permeated throughout Judaism. Add to this the fact that the virgin birth story was so unusual. The fact that Jesus' birth occurs at the worst of times in the midst of a great census and the humble circumstances to which the king of the Jews would be born. And you can understand how dark this story would have seemed. I know that we see this story as beautiful and full of light. 
But part of the beauty of Jesus' birth story is found in the fact that it came at a horribly dark time. But there is good news in the midst of darkness. Darkness is everywhere in Christ's birth, which should not come as as a surprise when we think of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the conditions of the world that God had created. As John 1 says, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Yet the world did not know him. The reality of Christ's darkness is not in itself comforting. The reality of Christ in the midst of darkness is not in itself comforting. But when we consider that Christ came into the darkness in order to bring light, the truth is beautiful. For we all face seasons of darkness. And God in the flesh knows exactly what that looks like and feels like. Remember, remembering that the light of Christ came in the darkness of night gives us hope that God can still pour light into our hearts and shine light into our lives. No matter how dark it may be, no matter where the darkness comes from, God is the light who enlightens everyone and has come to take up residence in the lives of those who look to Christ. You know, it's interesting how often history repeats itself. The story of light breaking through the darkness seems to be one that occurs over and over again throughout history. Do you know that there are different shades of darkness? Can you imagine how dark the world seemed to the Israelites who were trapped in Egyptian oppression. To them, it was very, very dark. For hundreds of years, they've been oppressed by the Egyptian people to the point that they cried out to God for a deliverer. Yet God would send them a deliverer through Moses. Imagine how bright the light must have seemed to those who crossed the Red Sea. With Egypt officially in their rearview mirror, they were familiar with the darkness, but now they were familiar with the light. Or even better, consider the story that is being told. I've selected a couple of passages that paint a story of darkness being contrasted in a great light. And yes, they sound like they could have been written for the original Christmas story, but they are actually talking about the story that is still being written today. Listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. I know this wasn't written for the Christmas story, but it may be appropriate here. Romans 13, verse 11 to 14 says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Cast off, if you didn't catch that, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
This could very easily be referencing what the world was like as Jesus entered the world in human flesh, but it's not. It's talking about what is to come and possibly even what is happening right now. The truth is that we still live in a very dark world. The darkness is evident in our ugly political landscape, our very present weight of sickness and death, divisions even within the church, and especially within the immorality of our world. I told you a few moments ago that darkness comes in very different shades. All you have to do is turn on the news and you can see darkness. I read this week of a pastor, we just happened to be in Birmingham, it was not me, of a pastor in Birmingham that was arrested because apparently he had lived a life full of sexual immorality and had been escaping from justice for 20 years and he had assumed a new name and now he was a pastor at a Baptist church in Birmingham. There's darkness in there. I read this morning of a two-year-old girl that was missing. There's darkness that's in there. There's apparently a, a parade. I can't even pronounce the name of the city. Several people were run over intentionally. There is darkness in there. It does not take long for us to find the darkness in the world in which we live. It could be argued that the world has become so dark that we no longer anticipate the possibility that light might soon break through the darkness. But I assure you today, it will. There is still hope for those who trust in the Lord. Maybe you wonder when such light will break through. If so, you are not alone. In fact, Jesus had to address this with his disciples. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24, verse 36 through 44. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Within this passage, there are three things that I want you to see this morning. And they relate not only to the story of Christmas, but also to our present circumstances. The first thing is this, the light is closer than you think. According to this passage, the day and hour no one knows. Certainly, this would have fit well with the people of Joseph and Mary's day. 
They've experienced such darkness. And the idea that light might suddenly shine on them seemed like a pipe dream. Seemed like something that could never happen. For generations, we've waited for God to show up. Literally for four centuries, we've waited for something. What makes you think today will be any different? And they were so accustomed to the darkness that they really did not even see the possibility of light. As the story unfolds, the greatest event in human history happens in Bethlehem. A virgin would be with child, and that child would be the Son of God coming to live among humanity. But there is very little awareness among the Jewish people. It's not like there was this big celebration. I know, we, we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is a time, in many ways, it's been commercialized. But on the other side of that, man, it's just a time we get excited about. People will come to church just because it's Christmas, because that's what we're supposed to do. People will get together and they'll sing. And sometimes even when they come together as a family, even though nobody in the family knows how to sing, they'll sing. Why? Because we celebrate this season, this event of Christmas. But that's not what happened in Bethlehem. There's very little awareness among the Jewish people. Sure, there are a few shepherds, whom we'll talk about later in this series. And soon after, there'll be some wise men who will show up to celebrate the occasion. But they're likely not even Jewish. The point is that nobody was even thinking about the possibility of light appearing in the darkness. Here's an interesting contrast for you. According to John chapter 3, those who love darkness will refuse to come into the light for fear that their sins might be exposed. So they recognize there is a light and they'll simply try to avoid that light because if they get in that light, everyone else will know what they've been up to. They'll know the darkness that they have. But here you have those who love the light, yet they act as if they no longer expect the light to show up. One is afraid of the light while the other no longer sees the light as being possible or even real. In fact, let me demonstrate this for you. There are multiple times where we see the angel of the Lord showing up to foretell what is about to happen, especially in the Christmas story. In Luke chapter one, we have Zechariah being told that he will have a son and that son will prepare the way for the Messiah. That conversation, by the way, Zechariah was a priest. If there was anybody who would have known that God could show up and do something great, it should have been Zechariah. But that conversation between the angel of the Lord and Zechariah begins in Luke 1 verse 13, where the angel says, do not be afraid. Why would he be afraid? Then a little later in that same chapter, You have Mary being told that she will be the one to give birth to the Son of God. But again, in Luke 1, verse 30, we see these same words, do not be afraid. Then in Luke chapter 2, we have the announcement that is given to the shepherds. And this announcement begins with the words, fear not. You know the rest for Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Fear not. Okay, so 
I get the fact that conversations with angelic beings are not conversations that you have often. And Zechariah and Mary and these shepherds, this was probably a new experience for them. So I kind of see where maybe some of the fear might have been coming from. But all three of them immediately assume that there is a reason to fear. Maybe they're thinking that this is the worst of situations. This is the judgment of God that is about to come upon me. I guess it's kind of like getting pulled over by the police and you will automatically assume that you're in trouble. I had a roommate in college. His name was Gordon. He got pulled over and he knew that he hadn't done anything wrong. But he said he immediately got this uneasy feeling in his stomach when he saw the blue lights behind him. When the officer came to the window... He gave my roommate a t-shirt that said, I got caught driving safely through a specific town that he had been driving in. But the assumption is that it must be bad news. Well, part of that is because we haven't had good news in 400 years. It's been a long time. We no longer expect to see and hear good news. Zechariah Mary and the shepherds all immediately respond with fear. There appears to be no thought that this could be great news. It's as if they've given up on hearing good news. But the light was about to dawn on them, as well as the rest of humanity, by the way. Likewise, the passage that I read to you declares that no one knows when the Lord will return. What that suggests is that it could be today. How many of you have ever thought, man, I wish the Lord would come back today? Maybe you thought it because you had some type of personal turmoil that you were going through. Or maybe because you see people that you love who are going through pain. I'm going to add one other possible reason. Maybe it's simply because you know that there'll be no more sorrow and no more death, and you will be in the presence of an almighty God for all eternity. Whatever it is, I know that I have thought that way. Remember the words of Romans 3.11? I actually read it to you earlier. 13.11, excuse me. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Logic says that salvation, the day of the Lord's return, logic says that salvation has to be closer today than it was yesterday. But it's more than that. The reality is that we see prophecies being fulfilled in our own lifetimes that suggest that the return of Christ could be very soon. There was a world of people who missed out on the first coming of Christ. I don't want there to be a world of people who miss out on the second coming of Christ. I know that the Lord's return could be another hundred or even a thousand years away. But my guess is that that light is closer than we think. So maybe it's time for us to begin to look to the light as opposed to being so overwhelmed by the darkness. I challenge you not to get caught up in looking in the darkness around you. 
Look at the light that has come. In fact, let me take this one step further with you for a moment. We're talking about light in the midst of darkness. There is another application regarding this idea that the light is closer than you think. Yes, you do live in a dark world. But as those who are filled with the Spirit of Christ, there ought to be a light that shines within each of us so that we never truly walk in complete darkness. So let your light shine in the darkened world. Yes, there will be darkness, but man, there is also light and it dwells in me and it dwells in you as children of God. The second thing that I want you to see today from our passage is that when things seem the darkest, hope is the greatest. Jesus compares the second coming of Christ with what things were like in the days of Noah. And my first thought is that he is primarily talking about the fact that people were caught off guard by the flood. He talks about people marrying and giving in marriage. Basically, they're living their lives as if there is nothing else going on. But I wonder if there isn't more to Jesus's comparison between the days of Noah and the day that Christ will come back. How dark was the darkness of Noah's day? Listen to the words of Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, last week I actually talked a little bit how I kind of would like to be like Job, not in that I want to go through all the difficulty that he faced, but I want to be the kind of guy that the Lord would look and say, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Mike? He is upright. He is living the way he's supposed to. He displays the spirit of God in his life. I want God to be able to brag on me. But consider the contrast to what we see here. It says, I am sorry that I have made them. How great must their sin have been that God's wrath would be poured out on them? You know, there are other times in the scriptures where we see God's wrath being poured out. Obviously, we often think about Sodom and Gomorrah, but one might also include Egypt as they experienced the 10 plagues that fell upon them. But this is more than just a nation that is being judged. This is all of humanity, with the only exception being Noah and his family. How evil must man have become for God's wrath to be so immediately ushered in? Their sin grieved his heart. It says that he was sorry to have made them. Surely this was a great darkness. It's not in my notes here, but sometimes I look at the darkness of our world and I wonder how much worse they must have been 
Is it even possible they could have been worse than the darkness that we see so often in our world today? And if God's wrath was extended upon such a dark world back then, how much further can we go before God's wrath is poured out upon humanity again? I'm just going to tell you, in the midst of darkness, there is hope and there is light, and it is only found in Jesus Christ. It is often in the midst of the darkest nights that we become even more aware of the light. When we feel abandoned, when we feel weak, when we feel desperate, that's where we find our greatest hope. You see, when the light shines in the darkness, it can blind you. And suddenly the darkness doesn't seem so dark. That's why we lit the hope candle this morning as we celebrate a hope that has been delivered to humanity through Jesus Christ in the midst of darkness. Well, I have one last thing that I want to share with you this morning from our passage, and it's simple. We need to get ready because things are about to change. In the story of Christ's birth, much was about to change. For Mary and Joseph, change would happen quite quickly. It would involve a lifestyle change. They would move from being single adults, because they weren't married when all this started, to being married, to all of a sudden also parenting, as well as being forced into relocation during Jesus' early years as King Herod would set out to have Jesus killed. And in order to protect Jesus, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, you need to take your family and flee to Egypt. It's a bit ironic that you have the Messiah actually fleeing to Egypt when the people of God had actually fled from Egypt centuries earlier. God was almost retracing the steps and it was all about bringing salvation, not only to the Jewish people, but to humanity. For Joseph and Mary, change would happen very, very quickly. For the rest of humanity, Jesus would turn the world on its end, but it wouldn't happen overnight. Jesus would tell the people not to assume that he came to bring peace, even though he was the Prince of Peace. As a child, King Herod would seek to have Jesus killed. As an adult, the Pharisees would despise everything that Jesus stood for. He was definitely changing things. And even for us, he changes things. He changes me. He changes you. See, change was taking place through Jesus Christ. So you need to get ready for the change that's coming. If he has not changed your life, let me suggest to you that he desires to change your life today. For far too many of us, what we've done is we have assumed that I can be a child of God yet not be changed. But that's not who Jesus is. He didn't save us so that we could remain in our sin, but rather he saved us so that we could be delivered from that sin. He wanted to bring light into darkness, so much so that you wouldn't even see the darkness anymore. When the light comes into the room, it destroys the darkness. It's not as if they coexist among each other. I know you say, well, well pastor, I've seen really dim lights where you, know, you can still see the darkness. No. When true light comes into the room, it completely dispels the darkness. And when the light of Christ is in you, 
then you ought to be changed from a being who is filled with great darkness to one who is filled with great light. That means your life should be changed. According to our passage, change is on the horizon for each of us. I'm not even talking about just the within. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two more will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. The point is that change will happen very quickly. My challenge to you this morning is simple. First, I call you to a hope that this world does not offer. I've talked about a lot of the darkness that we see. It's not hard to find it. Our world tries to offer a light to make things better, but there is only one light of the world, and that is Jesus Christ. I offer you a hope that dispels the darkness. Yes, there will still be darkness, but there is also hope as we look to the light of Christ. But I also challenge you to make sure that you are ready. The image of people going about their daily lives and suddenly they are taken suggests that they didn't have time to go home and get their affairs in order. They didn't have time to go and make things right with someone else that they had an issue with before. They didn't have time to go and say goodbye to family members. It simply says that the two will be working and one will be taken and the other one left. Maybe what needs to happen is that we need to get ready now for what is to come then. I know this doesn't sound like your typical Christmas message, and I'm sorry if I've disappointed you this morning. But I want you to understand that there were many who missed out on the first coming of Christ. They did not recognize the incredible occasion. Some wise men who came from the east, they got to come. Some shepherds who the Lord basically gave them the privilege, not because they deserved it. They, they were random recipients of a blessing. They weren't looking for the birth of Jesus that night. They were out tending to their sheep, and that was it. The reality is there was a world of people that missed out on that great first coming. I don't want you to be among those who miss out on the second coming of Christ. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, I do pray that, first of all, we would be ready when the second coming of Christ takes place. We celebrate the fact that the first coming did occur. We celebrate the fact that you sent your son to live among humanity, to experience all the things that humanity experiences. But more than that, that you sent him to be the sacrifice for our sins. Well, we celebrate the fact that you were changing things. But even more, we celebrate the fact that you are still changing things. Thank you for the salvation that has come upon so many of us here. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the fact that you are changing who we are, that we're not the same people today as we were when we first surrendered our lives to you. I confess, there have been many times those in the church have not lived up to the standard that they're supposed to, but Lord, I don't want that to be me. I don't want you to ever be able to look upon me and say it grieves my heart that he was even created. 
Father, I want to be so devoted to you, so surrendered to you that you would look and be pleased with what you see. Father, I pray that you would change us so that all of us could say that same thing. And Father, we know that there will come a day that in the twinkling of an eye, an incredible change will take place. That this world of darkness will be flooded with light and that we will be removed and we will no longer have to deal with the weight of sin and death as we deal with today. Father, I pray that we would be ready for that day. If there be one here today that does not know your grace, that is not ready for the return of Christ, I pray that right now you would minister to their hearts, that you would impress upon them the need to surrender everything to you, that they would know the grace of Jesus Christ, and that they would know the hope that you alone offer to us. Forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and from this moment forward, may we walk as those who are ready for the change that will take place. Father, I pray for your anointing and blessing on us as we continue through this Christmas season. May it be a time not only to remember, not only to celebrate, but a time to look into our own hearts and recognize your place as to where you belong in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us this morning. Remember that next Sunday is our plus one Sunday, and I know that there's a little bit of a salvation message that was within the message today. I'm giving you a heads up already. Next Sunday, there will be a salvation message, primarily because we're inviting you to invite other people to be here. I don't just want you to bring all the guys from the Baptist church down the road or from the Methodist church down the road. I'm not saying that you might not have someone that comes from another church, but my goal is not to reach those who are already in someone else's pasture, but rather to reach those who are lost. So I encourage you, bring family, bring friends, bring anyone you can without throwing them into the back of your van and then dro dropping them off here at the church. So it is a blessing to have you with us this morning, and hopefully you'll all come back and be a part of the rest of our Christmas season. Go in peace. Thank you, Tim.